All right, would you want to know the day you're going to die? What if it's far away? What if it's a couple decades away? Someone said no right away. No, I don't want to know. Okay, do you want to know the way you're going to die? No also, no, right, right? Because we don't all die the same way if you didn't know that. I know all of us want to die at like 95 years old, taking a nap with a Bible on our chest, heading to heaven. Doesn't happen for most of us, okay? So uh, we don't want to know the day we're going to die. We don't, know what, we don't even think we want to know the way we're going to die. We certainly don't want to know the day and the way, but guess what? That's what Jesus knew about himself. Turn to Mark 11. Today, Jesus knows where he's headed. He knows the day he's going to die, five days from where we pick up the story. He knows the way he's going to die by crucifixion and betrayal. And what we're picking up today is on the triumphal entry. If you take notes, and I do want to thank both of you for taking notes, okay? Those of you who take notes, uh, here's, the, here's the whole outline. We're going to see the triumphal entry and then a bunch of T's. What do I mean by that? Uh, in other words, we're going to see the triumphal entry, and then he's going to go to the temple, the tree, the temple, the tree, the temple. I'm serious. That's the whole outline. So here we go. Uh, what we're going to see today is Jesus is coming on, in what's called the triumphal entry. This is Passover week. This is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. It would have been unbelievably busy in Jerusalem because it's Passover, okay? They said that the population in Jerusalem tripled during Passover. So here's what I want you to think of. High point during the furniture market, okay? You can't get a hotel. You can't get a reservation. All these people here from out of town, that's exactly what's happening. And today, here's the big idea. Jesus is going to show up as a servant king riding on a colt. We're going to see that. He's going to tell us the type of king he is, and then he's going, to have, he's going to judge the tree. We'll talk about that. And he's going to judge and cleanse the temple. So tree and temple after the triumphal entry. Here's the big idea. Jesus is a servant king who wants you to be faithful and fruitful. What does God want from your life? Well, I don't know every idiosyncrasy of you in your individual life. But here's what we do know. What does God want from every Christian to be faithful and to be fruitful? So that's where we're going today. Let's pick up with the triumphal entry. Look, look, look at me at verse one. Mark 11, verse one. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. We're going to return to that because notice that Jesus always sends his disciples out two by two. We'll come back to that. Um, and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untied and bring it. Now, that's interesting. Uh, Jesus is showing that he's a king. How do we know that? Well, if you know the time period back then, uh, he does two things that only kings do. Number one, a king could commandeer any animal at any time for his purposes. So Jesus is kind of showing his kingship that way. Also, uh, when a king would ride into a village or a town or an area, he would only and always ride on animals no one else has ever ridden on. So that's why this is important. Jesus is showing his kingly nature. But look at verse three. It kind of sounds strange, right? And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, well, the Lord has need of it. By the way, Jesus calls himself Lord. The Lord has need of it. And I will send it back, in, sorry, and will send it back here immediately. A couple things. First, why does Jesus send people out two by two? Think about this, right? Because this is a... Uh, well, okay, so back when he has the 12 disciples, remember this, and he has his first short-term missionary trip, he sends all the disciples out. He sends them out two by two, which is not very efficient. I guess Jesus must care about something more than efficiency, right? Because I'm not very good at math, but if you've got 12 disciples and you send them six different, well, two by two, you can only send them to six places. If you send them one by one, then all of a sudden you can send them to 12 places. Okay, I just want to say this every time it comes up in Scripture because it's against the individualistic spirit of the American which is the American spirit, which is you need other people, which is you need community. The reason that, the, why do you go two by two into a village? Because a guy could get in trouble going to a village by himself, right? Does it, does it take two guys to get one cult? Obviously not. There's something deeper here. I need encouragement. I need accountability. 
I need partnership. I need fellowship. But then how about the commands? It's a little strange, isn't it? Go to this village, okay. Uh, there'll be a cult, okay. Untie that cult, okay. There'll be a guy who probably asks you a question, okay. Uh, tell him the Lord needs it and he'll be okay with that. It's like, what? Here's the principle, I think. Jesus tells us just enough information to take our next step. Do you know that? Jesus will tell you a bunch of things. It's like, well, this is why the Bible says that the word of God is a lamp to our feet, not a high beam. Or well, here's what theologians call it. They call it the dimmer switch principle. He give, it's like turning on the, the lights slowly. It's like he gives you just enough information, just enough light to take your next step. And then when you take your next step, you understand it a little bit more. Okay, I'll show you. Look, look at verse four. So they have to... They have to see as Jesus telling the truth. Here it is, verse four. And they went away and they found a colt. He said there'd be a colt. There's a colt tied at a door outside the street and they untied it. Okay, so they obeyed that. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. This is what I call the Kevin McAllister moment. Okay, do you remember in Home Alone 2 when Kevin McAllister, he's, he's at the hotel and he's got his parents' credit card and he walks up there and he, he, he does what his parents do, which is he gives a credit card and they swipe it and he goes, it worked. <laughs> that, that's what the disciples are like, right? This is, uh, here, guys, this is the adventure of your life. The adventure of your life is listening to what Jesus told you to do, taking your next step and seeing what happens. Because here's what's really cool. They don't know that what Jesus says is true until they do it. How many people, they look at what the Bible says, they look at what Jesus says, and they just critique it. That's so silly, that's so primitive, that's so ancient, that's so whatever. And then they never try it. There's, you know, there's only certain, there's, there's certain things that cannot be explained, they can only be experienced. So Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. Try explaining that to a five-year-old. Try explaining it to an adult who's selfish. It's really hard to explain it. Well, no, 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 it's better for me to give things. No, no, it's actually better for you to give things. You won't know it's true till you do it. When, if you lose your life, Jesus says you're going to find it. It's like, well, try explaining that to people. I tried a couple weeks ago, it's very hard to explain. But the people who have lost their life and given it to Christ have found a whole new life. Try explaining that to be a servant is the way to greatness. People have to know these things by experience. Now, here's what we do. Can we just, I know church is no place to be honest, but just for a minute here, okay? Can we just, can we just talk about what we do instead? What you and I are tempted to do is we try to manufacture, maybe that's too soft of a word, maybe we try to manipulate all of the relationships and all of the circumstances in our lives we try to organize them to get what we want. What do I need to say to my boss so that I'll get the desired outcome? What do I need to do with my spouse so that she'll do or he'll do what I really want? It's like, well, what about this principle instead? How about the adventure of your life is to obey what Jesus has said in that area of your life and see what happens? You won't know what happens. Instead of, instead of I'm gonna try to get my wife to do exactly what I want, how about I love her, nourish her, and cherish her, and sacrifice for her, and love her as my own body? Like Ephesians 5 says, and the adventure of my marriage will be seeing how that affects everything. Instead of you, how do you know what's best in your marriage? You don't know what's best in your marriage. Oh, I know, you gotta talk to your boss, and if you learn how to negotiate, then you could... 
what if you worked at work as if working for the Lord? What if you just started saying, that's it, I'm gonna obey what God says. He's only given me a little lamp in this area of my life. I'm gonna do what he said in this area of my life. And here's what, it's, it's an actually, it's literally an act of faith. And here's what faith says. Across a long enough period of time, I believe good things will happen. And the adventure and joy of my life is gonna be to obey Jesus, take the next step and see what happens. Okay, well, that's what the disciples do. I mean, think what an adventure. He said there'd be a cult. He said people would ask us. He told us how to deal with it. When we said that, they, they listened. Okay, so now we get to the triumphal entry. That was all kind of intro. Let's see the triumphal entry. Verse seven. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they cut from fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, maybe even singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now Mark 11 is the beginning of the end of the messianic secret. If you remember, we talked about this, right? If you're reading the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of strange. Like Jesus, whether he casts out a demon or he helps a disciple, as soon as it's over, he goes, don't tell anyone who I am. You're like, huh? Today is the first time in the triumphal entry that he's going to allow the crowds to publicly praise him for who he really is as he's heading to the cross. And here's what we see. This is Passover week. This is a triumphal entry. What would happen, a Roman triumphal entry it was done for military kings who had killed at least 5,000 people in battle. That's how you officially got a Roman triumphal entry. So you had to fight a big battle. You had to kill a lot of people. Jesus is gonna have a triumphal entry not for taking it lives, but for giving his life. And here's what we see. We see that Jesus is a humble servant king. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he's, he's riding on a colt, and this is, by the way, a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. You can write that down if you look it up later, but Zechariah 9.9 basically says, look, O Israel, here is your king humbly riding on a colt, right? You can tell a lot about a person by the vehicle they drive, right? It's still today, I think, right? Your house can be a status symbol of the neighborhood you live in, but people don't know where you live. Your car is your portable status symbol. We're not saying it's bad to have a nice car. We're saying that everybody's car tells us something. Oh, you drive an F-150, the working man. I like it, right? You're, oh, you drive a minivan. You're in that soccer mom season. We get it, right? You, you, you drive a Prius. You're vegan, we understand, <laughs> right? You have a Subaru Outback, liberal. I mean, right? <laughs> Every vehicle tells us something about, it's okay. Every vehicle tells us something about the person. So Jesus rides in on a colt. He rides in on a colt. It's humble. He, he's saying, I'm here to serve. I'm a king, but I'm a servant king. The, the, then we see they give him this, what we would call it the red carpet treatment, right? Today we give people honorary doctorates. We roll, roll out the red carpet. Back then it was to lay down your cloaks. It was palm branches. And then they say this, Hosanna. Literally transliterated, God save us. Which that is the prayer that Jesus loves to answer. Christianity is not God educate me. God make me the best version of me. God reform me, God rehabilitate me. It's God save me from myself and my sin and Satan's lies and the consequences of my sin. And so, well, that's the triumphal entry. He, he comes to Jerusalem, this, this is a nine month journey, but he goes through the triumphal entry. Look at verse 11, look where he goes. 
This is, he's going to go here three times in one chapter. No doubt the temple is the center of chapter uh, 11. Look, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he goes to the temple. What does he see? Well, we'll see. He's going to go back there in verse 15. He's going to cleanse it, overthrow the tables. He sees that people are using God's things for man's selfish purposes, but he doesn't immediately act. Maybe this is a lesson we need to learn, right? Do you ever get angry and act right away? We call that regret, usually, right? Because there's you, and then there's angry you, and angry you is impulsive. And angry you says things like never and always, and you know, angry you does things and says things and makes promises and makes threats. And well, anyway, Jesus, we'll see, he's angry, but he goes home and he makes well, we don't know all that he does, but he prepares to go back to the temple the next day. But I told you, it's temple, tree, temple, tree, temple. Okay, so let's look at the tree. So he goes to this fig tree, guys. Look at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So you see the divinity and then the humanity of Christ. The divinity of Christ accept worship. The humanity of Christ, I'm hungry. I need a snack. So, so here's what he does. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf... He went to see if he could find anything on it, just anything, is there any fruit? When he came to it, he found, we'll return to this, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What is this about? Well, you gotta go, he's doing what the prophets would do. Prophets would teach things through object lessons. So this tree represents something. What does it represent? It represents the nation and the religion of Israel. And how do we know that? Because in the Old Testament, many places, God talks about Israel as a fig tree. In fact, God, God loves to talk about the nation of Israel as a wife, implication, she should be faithful. As a son, implication, he should follow. And as a garden and as a tree, those are used interchangeably. What does that mean? That they should be fruitful. What's interesting is Jesus comes in, he's the humble, lowly, servant, suffering king. And the rest of this chapter is two acts of judgment. One act at the tree, the fruitlessness of Israel. One act, the temple, the faithlessness of Israel. This is, here's what God's saying. This is a tough word. God is saying to Israel, I'm basically done working through you. This is a, by the way, this is a warning to every church. God can say, I'm no longer, you're not, basically, here's how we would say it, you're useless. You don't bear any fruit anymore. Jesus gets up close and it's, notice it says that there's, it was not the time for figs. You're like, well, then what's the problem with there being no figs? Because even when it wasn't the time for figs, there would be some first fruits of the figs. There'd be some sign of future fruit. There was not even a sign of future fruit. Here's what happens sometimes, a church becomes unfruitful and unfaithful to Christ. They've stopped teaching the word of God. They stopped preaching the gospel. They stopped talking about the cross. They stopped talking about repentance and faith. And they become fruitless. I've got a buddy. He's in a global city. He's pastoring in a global city. And when you're in a global city, it's like, this is kind of a, a big deal in Winston-Salem. Like, it's nice to have a building. But when you're in a global city, you're like, I need a building. And they're very hard to come by. And it's very hard to establish yourself. It's very hard to do kids ministry and student ministry and midweek things and, and good weekend services if you don't have your own building. And so he's been there for like 15 years. 
And he still is renting. He doesn't have a building. He said, Kyle, he said, I walk the streets of my city. He said, and I pray Matthew, I think it's Matthew 23, somewhere in there, which is in Matthew's account after the fig tree, Jesus goes to the Pharisees and says, the kingdom is being taken out of your hands because you will not make it, because it's not bearing fruit, and I'm going to give it to people who will bear fruit. He said, Kyle, I walk the streets of my city, and I see all of the churches that are theologically liberal and that have left the gospel, and I beg God to give me their buildings. He said, I pray. He said, he said this to me. He goes, Kyle, I make a sacred vow to God. I said, I don't know if I've ever done that. He said, I make a sacred vow. I said, God, if you give me a building and it does not bear fruit in a few years, I will give it to somebody else. He understands the principle. What does God want in your life? He wants you to be fruitful. What do we settle for? Leaves. Do you see that? It says that, now, by the way, you can only see fruit once you get up close. Leaves can be seen from a distance. You know the Greek word for leaves? Instagram. This is, a, this is I couldn't believe it. See, it's interesting. They, the, the thing about leaves are, it, it's, it's what everybody, so what do we do this time of year? We get up in our car, some of us, and you go up to the Blue Ridge Parkway and you drive around. Why do you do that? To see leaves. Le- leaves are beautiful on the outside. They're very different than fruit. The temptation in our own lives is to settle for leaves, how we appear versus how we really are. The temptation with our kids is to settle for leaves. I remember when I, when I had my daughter, Addie, it's my first child, uh, someone told me, hey, this is probably important with both guys and gals, but, but said particularly said, when you're raising a daughter, um, compliment her character more than you compliment her appearance. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, because appearance can, it's not that it's not important, but it can be leaves. Character is the fruit of our lives. I think the temptation is to settle. Like if, our, if our kids are polite and they have a decent personality and they get good grades and they know how to shake someone's hand and say their name and look them in the eye, we think that our kids are okay. So we need, to, we need to look for fruit. Now, what is fruit? The Bible speaks of fruit in two ways. It's the character of our lives and our impact on other people. It's the character of our lives and our impact on other people. So think about it. The best way to think about fruit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, that's very, very important. The temptation in churches is to really try to emphasize the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not talking about the miraculous gifts. I'm talking about teaching. I'm talking about discipleship. I'm talking about administration. I'm talking about just the, the gifts of the Spirit. Where, where churches fall apart is where people are growing in the gifts of the Spirit but not growing in the fruit of the Spirit, right? And you've seen that. You, know, you see pastors' lives that fall apart, and you're like, how, how did that happen? He was such a great leader. They, they were so good at leading worship. The teaching was so good. Their systems were so great. What happens in those situations is somebody has the gifts of the Spirit and they're not growing equally in the fruit of the Spirit. The second thing that your, your fruit is, is it's your impact on other people. What's it like to be on the other side of you? Are you, you know, fruit's for other people, right? The, the reason the tree grows fruit is not for it to eat its fruit. It's for other people to have that fruit. How fruitful is your life? Here's what it means to be fruitful. You make everybody and everything around you better. I don't mean that in some shallow way. I mean that in a meaningful way. Like, that's just what you do. I remember there was this girl from college, and I saw, I saw her, and I said, hey, you know, and she, she had this great lady that was discipling her in college. I said, whatever happened to Ashley? I, she, she was like such an unbelievable, she was discipling you in college, and you were growing so much. I said, 
where is Ashley now? She goes, oh, Ashley got married. Now she's got two kids and Ashley lives, you know, she says where she lives. And I go, what's Ashley doing? She goes, making everything better. She's like, that's what she did when she discipled me. She just made me better and every girl that ever was around her better. And she's currently making her husband better and her kids better. She, and, and she actually lives, she kind of told me, so she's lived in the neighborhood and she's doing something there. And she's very involved in her church and everything's getting better. It's like, wow, you know? Some people just need, some of you just need to stop making things worse. <laughs> like that's the beginning. Stop making things worse. Stop making things worse. Yes. Okay. Stop making things worse and then start making them better. Bill Bright, the guy who started Campus Crusade for Christ, I talk about him often. When he died at his funeral, a senator got up and said, Bill Bright reminded me in a crazy world that God still reigns. Wouldn't you love to have that be your legacy? Well, how do you, how does, how is fruit formed? Well, let me say a few things. Number one, you can only see fruit up close. Jesus couldn't see if there was fruit or not until he got very close. Do the people closest to you love you the most? Is, is the fruit in your life easy and obvious to see to those who are closest to you? Or would we have to, if we asked your parents or your siblings or your spouses or your friends or your coworkers, is there any fruit in Joe's life? They'd be like, four years ago, he invited me to a Christmas party. We need some more fruit than just that. But some of you, so, so some of us, this is always interesting, right? The, the role of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, okay? And, uh, and, and some of you, I mean, I think most of us, we, we probably think there's more fruit in our life than there is. You know, and some of you, your spouses are hitting you in the side a little bit today. But then there's others of us that were really hard. There's a few of us, at least in here, that you're just really hard on yourself. I don't have any fruit. I just, you know, I'm a mess. I'm not, you know, and you just, and so let me just encourage you because so it, t- it takes a while for fruit, fruit to grow. Two principles on how fruit grows, formational and relational. I'm gonna talk each of these. Fruit is formational. In other words, it takes, so if, if the illustration is a garden or the illustration is a tree, it takes time. F D I E, frequency, duration, intensity, environments. F D I E is a helpful way to think through are you growing in an area of your life that might encourage you. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people, especially men, they only think about their life in terms of frequency. How much am I doing something? How much am I not doing something? Well, that's a good place to start. You may talk to someone and they say, you know what? I'm not growing very much. I still fight with my wife five times a week. It's like, well, how much did you fight with her last year? Well, seven days a week. Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> that's, that's two whole less days, right? That's a hundred less days a year if you do some math. That's a lot less fighting. Praise God. Well, sometimes you can't even, but sometimes you talk to someone and there's, the frequency stayed the same. So you're looking for some grace. You're looking for some way to kind of stoke the fire. Okay, well, you, uh, we're fighting how many, how often? Seven times a week. Well, then we fought seven times a week last year too. Okay, well, what about the duration? Oh yeah, now we're able to fight and we're, we're able to kind of get through it in about 15 minutes. Praise the Lord. What would it used to be? Oh, two hours and we had a headache and I have, you know, I, I'm more flight, she's more fight, and it was a mess. Oh, praise the Lord, you've made it, you, duration, it's different. How about intensity? We know how that feels. That's how does it feel, right? That's subjective a little bit. I've heard it said that an alcoholic, or maybe this is any addict, an alcoholic who feels tempted to drink wants a drink in the same way that someone at the bottom of a 50-foot pool wants up to the top for air. It's like, wow, that kind of gives you a picture of what an addict might feel like. 
What if eventually the addict says, you know what, I still, yes, I'm tempted, but it's not the same. It's more like I'm at the bottom of a five-foot pool. <laughs> okay, and then environments. I can be with more people and I can be in more places and not give in to that sin. So I think sometimes, you know, sometimes we just need to encourage, some people just need to be challenged. You have no fruit. And some people just need to be encouraged. Hey, I see a few figs. They're really small. But I think across time, this could grow. And then relational is it happens in community, guys. It happens in community with other people. It happens with God. I mean, I think sometimes we think that somehow the way that we become more godly is we download something from the sky, like an iCloud download. Like, I need more love, you know? I need more kindness, please. It's like, actually, it doesn't work that way. It's in relationship. It says that we get, I think it's 1 John 4, it says God gives us love. His love. Oh, it's relational. Jesus says in John 14, I give you my peace. Oh. Romans 14 says, we get the joy of the Holy Spirit. Oh. So I actually have to watch God do these things to me. That's why we say, you know, serve people, serve people, and love people, love people, and hurt people, hurt people. It's what you've experienced is what you end up giving to other people. So he, he curses the tree. And then when he goes back to the temple, let's see this. So he deals with their fruitlessness and now he's going to deal with their faithlessness. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple second time, verse 11, now verse 15. And look, he does four things. And he drove out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. That's the first thing. It's like, well, that's dramatic. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. That's the second thing. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's the third thing. Fourth thing. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. But when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus goes to the temple. Now, let me just, we're going to get to exactly what he did in a minute. You, I just read it. But let me just tell you the history of the temple. Because here's what I want you to understand. If you understand the history of the temple, you, under this, you understand the history of God's people. The story of the temple is the story of every Christian life. Let me just tell you. Where was the temple located? Mount Moriah. Where was Mount Moriah? Where Abraham walked up with his son Isaac ready to sacrifice him. Well, David knows this, and so later it comes for sale. And David's a wealthy guy. King David, he says, I'll take that piece of land. So he buys that piece of land. He has a heart to build a temple. God says, you're not building it. So he says, fine, can my son build it? God says, your son can build it. So his son builds this massive temple. And they commit it. They say, God, you blessed us. We want to love you. We want to put you first in our lives. And then 300 years later, over the course of 300 years, they fall into idolatry, superficial religion. And what ends up happening is the Babylonians come, and God tells us in the Old Testament, the Babylonians come to judge, and they destroy the temple. And the people get led, drove off into slavery. Has that ever happened to you? You dedicate yourself to the Lord. You say you're going to do all these things. Things start going well. You forget God. You fall into sin. Sin enslaves you. They come out of sin. They go, God, I'm so sorry. Thanks for getting us out of this. Can we rebuild the temple? God says, you can rebuild the temple. They said, okay, it'll be small. It'll be modest. It'll be humble. They did it. They said, we're going to rededicate our lives to you, Lord. Lord says, that's great. Sounds good. A couple hundred years later, they fall into rebellion and sin and folly and idolatry, and God sends Tychicus to, as judgment on them. And Tychicus puts the god Jupiter in the center of the temple, and he slaughters pigs on the altar, which would have been the worst thing you could do. And the people cry out, and they repent, and they say they're sorry to God, and God raises up another man, 
his name was Herod, not the same Herod in the New Testament, and Herod builds them a third temple, which is basically an expansion of that temple. And now Jesus comes and sees what's going on in that temple, and he cleanses it, and in 70 AD, that temple's gonna be destroyed. This is what we call the sin cycle. This is what the whole book of Judges is. God saves the people. We say, oh, thank you, Lord. Then God makes us fruitful. And what happens when people get fruitful is they forget God. And then just, they forget God, but then what happens to their kids is their kids forsake God. That's it. One generation's fruitful. The next generation forgets. The next generation forsakes. The story of the temple is the story of Christians. So Jesus comes in, and it says that he drives them out. Now, what's interesting, do you see it says that they were selling pigeons? You go, well, why is that in there, right? Every word matters. You, they're selling lots of animals. Why are you mentioning pigeons? Because pigeons is what, is what you sold to the poorest of the poor. It was what Mary and Joseph, because they were poor and Jesus grew up poor, it's the, it's the offering that they would make. Because God said, look, we all make different amounts of money, but it's equal sacrifice. Okay, so if you're poor, you just buy a little pigeon, and I'll count that as your sacrifice. But what, and this is well documented, what happened at the temple is that people would come at Passover, they'd come from all over. And so what would happen is when they would come from far distances, they wouldn't bring their animals. I mean, it's a long walk. It might take you days or weeks to get there. And the temple said, no problem. I know you couldn't bring your pigeon, but we'll sell you a pigeon. Now, I know a pigeon normally costs a dollar, but here it costs $10, but you really don't, right? It's like being stuck at like a football game. It's like, oh man, <laughs> a hot dog's $14. It's like, yeah, we got you here now. This is what they were doing. It's like, haha, you can't go anywhere. And they had the religious thing and you want to sacrifice to the Lord, right? Okay, so it'll be ten dollars. Okay, then then they would they would reach in to get their money out. They say, "Sorry, that money is not good here. That's the we need to do cur currency exchange." Don't worry, we've got a really good deal on currency exchange. Not, I mean, it was just a terrible deal. It was like four times what it should have been to to exchange currency. And so what God is seeing is He's seeing. Here's what happened: the church became a place of religious, uh, the exchange of religious goods and services. It's okay, you know, they, they basically view, the temptation is for churches across time for you guys to view yourselves as customers, clients, and consumers. And that we have a role here, that we provide you a religious service. Do you want to be entertained a little? Do we want to laugh? Do you need some life hacks? What do you need? I'll give you that, and in return, why don't you give the church some money? Is there a new program that you want us to start? Well, we'll start it if you give. It's the church becomes religious goods and services. We use God's things for man's purposes. I mean, there's, there are gross versions of this, right, where pastors use their church to completely platform their lives. And it's like they're almost preaching over the people to everybody else, hoping that somehow their Instagram followers or something else is going to get big. It, it happens in weird ways through mainline churches that leave the gospel. This happens all the time. If you ever see churches in our city, and I love our city, but you see churches in our city and you drive by and you go, how does that church still exist? Nobody goes there. There's no gospel. There's no mission. There's no repentance. Like, how is that building still there? I know how the building's still there. They turned it into a daycare. I know how it's still, I see this all the time. They're renting their parking lot out to the businesses around them to pay their bills. We're not saying those things are wrong to do. Those things are wrong to do when you've left the gospel and that's the only way you're paying for everything. And so Jesus gets unbelievably frustrated. I mean, could you imagine turning over tables? He calls it, do you see what he calls it? He said it's a den of robbers or a den of thieves. What is a den of thieves? It was a place where thieves could hang out before they caused harm. 
What's interesting, maybe you don't think about it this way, but the church is sometimes where bad people, and, and we believe that everyone's bad needs to repent of their sin. I'm talking about a different type of bad, where bad people try to hang out. Because a lot of, I'm not picking on churches, but churches are usually nice people. A lot of church people are nice and naive. We need help in the kids' ministry. We need more volunteers. We're desperate for people. This is why it's hard to get connected here. It's easy in one sense, come to the weekender. But we want to get to know you. This, this is why we try to, here, here's another thing. I mean, a, den of, a, den of, a church becomes a den of robbers when people in a church feel safe in their sin. So this is a helpful clarification. The cross makes sin forgivable. Nothing makes sin safe. I mean, the, the, what we sing about is, oh, thank goodness. Across time, as we head to heaven through the final judgment, oh, the cross makes sin forgivable. Yes, nothing ever, not even the cross, makes sin safe. And this happened to me recently. I, I was talking to a lady in our church, I mean, very connected in our church, um, kids in our student ministry, just great, great family. And I'm talking to them the other, the other night. And the lady looks at me and she says, you know, when I first came to this church, I didn't like you. I thought, well, thank you very much. And she said, I didn't like you. She said, I'd get in the car and I'd just be angry. She said, and then I realized it was because you were telling us the truth from God's word. And I had, wasn't used to that. I had never had that happen before. And once I realized that, I actually realized that's a chance for me to grow. That's a chance for me to repent. That's a chance for me to change. So thank you. Jesus says, in return, he says, he, says he, only, he preaches a really short sermon. Do you see this? He gets in there, he does all that, but he preaches a, a short sermon. He says, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. That's it. It's the two things that they were forgetting. So here's what's interesting. In Jewish tradition, not Jewish scripture, in Jewish tradition, what they said was going to happen is they said the Messiah is going to come. And when the Messiah comes, we know what he's going to do. He's going to cleanse the temple. This is what they believed. The Messiah is going to cleanse the temple of all the Gentiles. Oh, the irony. He cleanses the temple of all the religious people because they forgot about the Gentiles. You know, there was an outer court. You can go look this up sometime. Just Google what the tabernacle looked like. There was an outer court called the court of the Gentiles. The Old Testament uh, Jewish religion was a come and see religion. Today we have a go and tell religion. Now every go and tell eventually becomes a come and see. You're, you're out and you might say, come and see my family. I want you to see a Christian family. Come and see my community group. Come and see my church. But primarily in the New Testament, Christianity is internal, portable. It's go and tell. In the Old Testament, it was come and see. That's why it was geographically based. That's why they dressed a certain way. That's why the temple was so central. They'd forgotten about the Gentiles. So he says, you forgot that it's to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he said, you forgot the first part, a house of prayer. Why prayer? Well, prayer is, what is prayer? There's lots of long definitions. The short definition of prayer is personal communication with God. He's saying, guys, this is a temptation in any church. This is a t we, we, could, we could get here. He said, guys, you forgot the church exists to be a house of prayer for all nations. House of prayer. You exist, church, two cities, to connect people to God through Christ. And that'll be most clearly expressed in prayer. They'll talk to God. They'll repent of their sins. That's what they're going to do. And then, guys, you exist. The church exists for those who believe and those who will one day believe. And they forgot that. So Jesus goes to the tree, condemns to the fruitlessness, goes to the temple, condemns the faithlessness, goes back to the tree. Look, let's look real quick. If you look at me at verse um, 20, 
It says, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. By the way, this is the only destructive miracle Jesus does in the whole gospels. Every other time Jesus does a miracle, he uses his power to restore, to heal, to cleanse, to get rid of the demonic. This is the only miracle in all four gospels that's destructive in nature. And instead it got to the roots. Here, here's what I just wanted to see for a minute. And you know this, I just want to say it out loud, that if you want new fruits, you need new roots. But this is, this is speaking of the radical nature of Christianity. We're trying to, I'm trying to, we as a, a teaching team here, we're, we're trying to teach about Christianity in such a way you say, yeah, Jesus, I need you to change me from the inside out. Because if you don't, if, if, you, if you walk out here and you just think, I, I need more fruit in my life. The temptation, if we don't, if you just think you need more fruit, the temptation in your life is gonna be try to duct tape fruit on a dead tree, right? Isn't that a weird picture? But some of us try to do that. You're trying to staple fruit onto a tree that has no life. What would be better is for you to get the right root system so that you can grow the own, your own fruit that's gonna be a blessing to you and everybody around you. So Jesus curses a tree and then he teaches on the opposite of faithlessness and fruitlessness. I want us to see this. So he just gave us two counter visions. Don't be like this tree and don't be like that temple. Okay, I don't wanna be like that. Well, Jesus, then what, what is vibrant, faithful, fruitful Christianity look like? Well, here it is. He gives it to us in verse 22. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. And then whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. I love this. He's saying, man, what does it look like for you to have faith in God in the midst of a society that's fruitless and faithless? Here's what faith in God means. It means I trust God. That's what faith means. We've talked about that before. We talked about that, I think, in the James series. Faith means literally I trust God. It's I have confidence in God. See, and this is something I'm gonna try to work on. Because um, what, I, what I do a lot in, in my teaching here is what I do a lot is, and I think rightly so, I try to critique the wrong things about our culture and it's just part of my role up here. Hey, here's how the culture's thinking about this wrong and sometimes it's warning, here's where the culture's going and, and, and it's all, I don't take anything back, it's all true. But I don't want anyone getting in the car, going home, going, oh, our culture. Our culture's going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, I hate this culture, you know? Hey, we got some dark days ahead of us. Oh, this is terrible. You know, I, I want people to leave here like, like cork in the ocean. You can't, pu you can't push me under. I'm just bouncing right back up. I am so unbelievably hopeful. Yeah, yeah it's a dark world, but what a chance to be light. Oh yeah, there's suffering, but God's gonna be in it with us. Let's start praying some mountain moving prayers, right? We, we don't do this. Like we, we don't, we don't we, God, I wanna pray for big things. He says this, he says, pray with faith. And then you see the other thing you have to pray with? You're not gonna like this one. The faith is the fun one. It's like, oh yeah, let's believe God for a bunch of stuff. The, the other one's hard. Forgive, do you see that? Jesus teaches there are two components to living a fruitful, faithful, powerful, vibrant life in Christ. One is I have faith. Two is I forgive other people, right? But how many lives are not fruitful, right? That's, that's what's choking the tree of your life is bitterness and unforgiveness, right? C.S. Lewis said, everybody thinks forgiveness is a great idea until they have something needing to be forgiven. 
As soon as they have to forgive somebody, it's like, ah, I don't know, forgiveness isn't a great idea anymore. Here's what this reminds us. There's a moral component to our prayer lives. Here's what, when, you're, when you don't forgive, you become bitter. And here's what bitterness says. <sighs> bitterness says, God, you got it wrong in my past. Anxiety says, God, you're going to get it wrong in my future. Faith says, God, I can't change the past and I can't control the future, but I trust you. Jesus is saying, I want you to have that vibrant faith. And then he makes one last move back to the temple to confront the religious leaders one last time. Let's look. Verse 27. And then, sorry, and they came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. Again, third time, verse 11, verse 15, now verse 27. And the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. That represents the entire leadership would have been called the Sanhedrin. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? What are they talking about? Well, a lot of things, but obviously the cleansing of the temple. I mean, you, you can see the assertive nature of Jesus Christ going back to the temple the next day after flipping tables there. I have nothing to fear. I have nowhere to hide. I have nothing to hide. I'm going to go back. Look what they do. And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well then, did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What keeps a people faithless and fruitless? We see it with the Pharisees, right? You go, why is this passage in here? Why does he go back to the temple? Why is this kind of the final condemnation of the Pharisees and, this, and, this, and the scribes and the teachers and the elders? It's because there's one thing Jesus can't work with, people who won't be honest with him. No matter where you are today, I mean, the good news is you can be like, I have so little fruit in my life, you know, it's just like, and I'm not even very faithful and I need to grow in both of those, but how do you grow in both of them? It's like, you be honest. That's what we tell people all the time. We say, if you ever come to our weekend or we say, here's what we want you to do. If you'll, come, if you'll come consistently to our worship services and you'll get in a community group and you will be honest, you're gonna make it. You can't just do the first two. You can't just say, I'm, I, show up, I show up each week and I go to a community group often, it doesn't work. And I'm even in a DNA group, doesn't work unless you're honest. You're only as healthy or strong as you are honest. And so the beginning of Christianity starts with an honest confession. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, help me. Here's what I want us to end with. The precursor to fruitfulness is faithfulness. I remember I was brand new. I went into full-time ministry for the first time. I was working on a college campus and it was so intimidating, you know, because I, I went to Elon University and then before I went to Duke to do ministry, I went over to UNC Greensboro for a few years. And UNC Greensboro at the time was 16,000 students and high rise dorms, which I wasn't used to. And I remember I worked for this college ministry and they said, well, go to the, go to the campus. And I would walk up to the campus and I'd see these you know, 10, you know, 10 story dorms. And I was like, I don't know anyone here and I don't go to school here. And I'm the old weird guy hanging around. Like, you know, I'm eating in the cafeteria, I'm working a night shift. And I remember just being so scared. And I, wanted all the, I had all these big dreams. I was like, I wanna see people come to Christ. I wanna see a movement. I wanna see disciples made. And I'll never forget my boss in my first day going to the campus. He said, Kyle, 
Just be faithful. You're worried about fruitfulness. You're worried about all this. Worry about faithfulness. The gospel goes forward one conversation at a time, one praying with your kids at a time, one sharing of your testimony at a time, one Bible study at a time, one good deed at a time. So let me just ask you, <laughs> what has God given you to be faithful with that all of your time will be fruitful? You may say it's very little. It's like a little house and it's like a little job and it's like, it's like a little money. Be faithful, God will be fruitful. All right, how about who? Who's God put in front of you to be faithful with? You might say, well, it's my wife and it's my kids. It's an employer too. What would it look like if everyone here said, we wanna be faithful. We also wanna be full of faith and we believe on the other side of faithfulness is fruitfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we just lift up our lives to you. Our servant king who comes riding humbly on a colt. What a picture of service to us. We thank you that in the gospel, we, are, we know that the first fruits, Jesus, is what you have done for us in the gospel, living the life, dying in our place, rising from the dead. That's what you, that was the first fruits, what you've done for us. Well, we also know that there's two other things. There's something you wanna do in us and there's something you wanna do through us, Lord. Would you do something in us, Lord? Would you increase the fruit of our lives, the fruit of the Holy Spirit all over this room? that people would go home and that they would make their families and their lives and their businesses better because Jesus was in their life. Lord, would their life be so fruitful that other people around them can taste the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness in their life, Lord? And would you just keep us faithful, Lord? Faithful is just what we saw the disciples do at the beginning of the chapter. We take you at your word and we take our next step. Please help us do that in Jesus' name, amen.